Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I believe very much the Emergency Act was a measure of last resort. And that it was incumbent upon us to, first of all, either exhaust all existing authorities or acknowledge that they would not be successful and could not be used for a number of different reasons. And we were hearing that type of feedback from law enforcement about the enormous challenges they were facing. Yeah, but you didn't hear from law enforcement that you should enact or invoke the Emergencies Act. You didn't hear that, Mr. Blair. You should know that. You're former chief of police of Toronto. And it doesn't matter what you believe or anybody believes. It's the writing, it's the words in the act that matter. And that was carefully crafted. And I spoke about that with my next guest just a few days ago. And my next guest is Perrin Beatty. And uh, Mr. Beatty, as you know, as we've been saying, is president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And he's the former minister of national defense in the government of Brian Mulroney. Now, you know the Emergencies Act became law in this country in 1988, and it replaced the War Measures Act, which was very, very heavy-handed. Anyway, uh, I asked Perrin Beattie about the language in the Emergencies Act. You're going to hear this, and you'll hear Mr. Beattie talk about the Emergencies Act. Now, he's the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, so I, I, I couldn't expect him to get too deeply into the... Um, when the Emergencies Act should be used. And I certainly didn't expect him to get into a situation where he's going to be confrontational with the federal government over the Emergencies Act. That's not his role. He's the president and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce. But he did talk to us about the act, why it was necessary, and why he introduced the Emergencies Act to Canadians, and it became law in 1988. Now, I did begin by asking the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce about our national economy and about whether we are doing everything, and by we, I mean the federal government. And, you know, when we talk about federal government, we're going to lump them all in because they all have responsibility in this. Whether the federal government and the, the liberals are the leaders, they are the government, they have the final say with their friends in the NDP. But is the federal government taking advantage of the tremendous opportunities that exist to positively direct the Canadian economy, and particularly where energy is concerned. Here's my conversation with Perrin Beatty. Mr. Beatty, the chamber had a specific request for the federal government, and particularly the Minister of Finance, to use the fall economic statement to set out a clear strategy for economic growth in light of international expectations for worldwide economic slowdown, including in Canada. You didn't hear that strategy laid out in the minister's economic statement, I understand, and the chamber's wish was for a strategy encouraging investment in Canada, addressing the interprovincial trade barriers, and you were hoping there'd be a solid plan to export food, fuel, and fertilizer 
the global markets. Would you speak to that, please? Did the federal government miss out on opportunity? I believe they did. And I think it's going to be very important that when the budget comes down or before the budget, that they set out a clear plan for where they want the country to go. Every study that's been done suggests that in terms of growth in Canada, we're going to be seeing levels of growth over the next 40 years that are way below those of the previous 40 years. And the minister in her budget last spring pointed out that in terms of productivity in Canada, we're falling behind our, our competitors. We have to up our game. To do that, we have to have a clear strategy. And the strategy has to be well communicated and all of us have to play our part. One aspect of uh, of trade, I always talk about this, is domestic. And it's challenging, extremely challenging, to trade among the provinces, maybe more so at times, interprovincial trade is more challenging than international trade. We've been sitting on, on this for so long and it hasn't been resolved. Must be frustrating for the Chamber. It's enormous, enormously frustrating. I was part of the government that brought in the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. Back, we're talking about back in 1988. If anybody had told me then that we would have free trade with the United States or within North America or with, with other countries, but we wouldn't have it within Canada, I simply wouldn't have believed it. Uh, it's time for us finally to, to achieve the dream of the Fathers of Confederation and have one market. What we have today is several different, you know, 13 different satrapies in Canada, all with their own rules all putting barriers in place to other Canadians and other parts of the country. Consumers lose, governments lose, businesses lose, it's lose, lose, lose. And this is something it wouldn't cost a penny for government to fix, but would generate economic growth in this country and improve the prosperity for every Canadian. And improve national unity, perhaps. And improve national unity. Uh, we need to take down those barriers. Uh, we're one of the most decentralized uh, countries anywhere in the world, and we have artificial barriers in place that that prevent us from acting the way that 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 modern countries do. The government's almost complete focus appears to be climate change and its net zero objective. The Montreal Economic Institute shared with me uh, the results of a report. Two weeks ago, I spoke with them, and they uh, indicate their research shows this policy, the net zero policy, would cost between 44 and $79 billion a year to the Canadian economy. Sorry, was there a question there? Yeah. What are your thoughts? Um it's, it's that we have to recognize that there is a cost in making this transition. There's enormous cost as well if we don't make it. But what we need is a government with a clear plan. They need to treat business not as the problem, but as a partner. And we need to be able to, to ensure that as we make the transition, that we're doing it in lockstep with other countries as well, particularly the United States. We don't benefit anybody and we don't benefit the global environment if we simply shift jobs out of Canada to another country. What we need to do is to have a coherent strategy, one which uh, which makes sense and which doesn't put Canada at a disadvantage. And so we're not an attractive investment opportunity to many in the global marketplace now then. I think that's a real concern. What we've what we've seen is difficulties over the last several years in terms of attracting investment. But if, if you look at the potential of Canada and where we are today, you mentioned earlier the food, fuel and fertilizer, the three Fs that the world desperately needs at this point. Um, 
when Chancellor Schultz was here in September in Ottawa, uh, he quoted Prime Minister Trudeau as saying, Canada has everything that Russia has, but we're a democracy. Well, we need to understand that ourselves. We have both an opportunity and an obligation to serve the rest of the world and to bring our products to, to the world to give the democracies, for example, an alternative to, to subsidizing Putin's war in Ukraine. Uh, we can fill some of that gap that there is in terms of, of food security in the world. And we can play an important role in terms of providing fertilizers and other critical minerals to the rest of the world. But we need to have a policy that makes it clear that that's our intention. We need to have the infrastructure in place to be able to deliver to markets. And we need to have the political will to make that happen. Mr. Beatty, I'm going to ask you some questions about the Emergencies Act. And I do understand there's a limitation as to what you can say to me in your current role with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. But you were the Minister of Defense in the government of Brian Mulroney. And in 1988, your federal government replaced the War Measures Act with the current Emergencies Act. Remind us, please, why that was necessary. It, if I was very much a product of, of my times, and I remember the um, October crisis of 1970, uh, when every Canadian had our civil liberties taken away from us as a result of the kidnapping of uh, Pierre Laporte and of, uh, and of James Cross, who was the... Uh, British Trade Commissioner in Montreal. As it turned out in the end, uh, it wasn't necessary to have imposed the War Measures Act. The people who were arrested, many of them arrested in the dark of the night with the most basic rights to see a lawyer, to have a charge preferred against them, and so on. Uh, all of those civil liberties were taken away. And yet at the end of the day, the perpetrators of these crimes were found through ordinary police methods, and nobody was ultimately convicted of an offense under the War Measures Act. As a result then, with this having been the, the, the single gravest suspension of civil liberties in, in our lifetimes, uh, what I wanted to do was to bring in legislation that would recognize that there will be instances where, where we'll have emergencies. It could be an earthquake in the lower mainland of British Columbia, or, or it could be a civil insurrection of some sort, or it could be war. There, there will be instances in the future where governments need to have emergency powers. But the quid pro quo is, if the government is going to take extraordinary powers to itself, it has there has to be extraordinary oversight and extraordinary accountability for it as well. And we have to constrain the ability of government to do that uh, so that it is focused on what is truly necessary as opposed to simply taking away the rights of, of every Canadian. And what the Emergencies Act did was to give modern legislation that you could apply in one part of the country if there was a, an emergency that was more limited, that brought Parliament into the picture and ensured parliamentary oversight, that ensured that the Bill of Rights uh, applied and the U.S. Covenant, the UN Covenant on Human Rights. Uh, it meant that there would be court review. It meant that there would also be a full review after it was over to see whether it was justified and what could be done to prevent the need for it in the future. Uh, the goal was to, to build in layers of protections for Canadians that would recognize the fact that, that there's nothing more fundamental uh, in a country than the protection of civil liberties. And when government needs to have extraordinary powers, there needs to be extraordinary accountability. Do you believe that invoking the Emergencies Act this year was unequivocally necessary and that there were no other existing policing options or federal statutes 
which would have served to defuse what Canada was facing on February 14th? That's that's the fundamental question that's in front of the commissioner today. Uh, the act is very clear that it is a measure of last resort. It is explicit in saying it can be used only if there are no other measures that would enable government to deal with the emergencies. And this is federal, provincial, or municipal uh, legislation on the books. And uh, what we've heard before the commissioner so far is conflicting testimony as to whether that's the case. I'll wait to see what his findings are. But but the onus of proof is on government to demonstrate that there were no other authorities available that would have enabled them to, to manage this crisis. And it was a crisis. There's no question about that. Uh, but the Emergencies Act is designed to be used as a measure of last resort. And it is the, the test is necessity as opposed to convenience. The issue is not whether it was useful to have it invoked, but whether it was essential to have it invoked. One more question for you. The language of the act is precise. Can you think of anywhere in the Emergencies Act language that use of the act is open to interpretation? Any statute is open to interpretation. It, it, for example, there's a there. It's before the courts today as to whether or not the government uh, was justified in invoking the act, and the commissioner is looking at that as well. But what we attempted to do in drafting the act was to constrain the circumstances as much as possible to make it clear that that there had to be a genuine emergency for the government to act, and to try to to ensure that that it wouldn't be loosely used. Um, as a result, then, we were quite careful in using the language in the CSIS Act, which had been carefully debated in Parliament, and which was designed to ensure that that civil liberties were protected. Um, that's why we wrote it the way that, that we did. And the uh, commissioner will be looking at whether or not, uh, when the government says that it had a broader interpretation than that, than the interpretation that is, that is made in the... Uh, in the uh, act itself by referring to the CSIS Act, uh, the commissioner will look at whether it was justified in doing that. The government has indicated that it had a uh, legal opinion on the subject. I hope it will table that that legal opinion before the commission and make it public. Uh, surely Canadians have a right to know the basis on which the government decided that it was legal to, to invoke the act. So Thursday at the inquiry, the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, testified. And then yesterday, as you know, Justin Trudeau testified. And he's sanguine about everything. He's very careful with comfortable bloody decisions he made. Wasn't particularly impressed with what he heard from police. Which is also interesting because the initial point that was made by the government, by by, by the Prime Minister by uh, Mr. Mendicino, by the government, period, was, well, we acted on the advice of police. And now, Prime Minister says he wasn't impressed with the plans the police had. I guess I just don't get it, eh? Um, Eva Krajewska is co-counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She was at the uh, inquiry, and she uh, cross-examined both the Deputy Prime Minister and the Prime Minister. Ms. Krajewska, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I wanted to ask you how you were, but after, after the time that you've spent in Ottawa, um, may I ask you before I get into specifics here, what was, the, what was the intent of the cross-examination? What did you want to know from the Deputy Prime Minister and the Prime Minister? 
so, I mean, each witness, um, we kind of, we prepare differently depending on, we get a witness statement ahead of time of what their anticipated evidence is. We have to plan what our objectives are. And then sometimes our plan changes depending on what comes out in their examination in chief by commission counsel. Sometimes things are covered or sometimes things come up and you're like, oh God, I gotta, I gotta ask a follow-up question about that. So for the deputy uh, prime minister, Freeland, the, the question for us really was she, her basis for invoking the act was the economic, um, the economic turmoil that the blockade of the bridge in Windsor was having and potential other blockades were having. And she went at length in examination in chief about how that, those economic issues and calls from the United States and calls from auto plants, you know, saying this is a really bad thing for our economy. How are we ever going to encourage investment? How are we, you know, are we even a comment from someone saying we're a banana republic because we don't have order? Um, that's what we wanted to focus on. And what we wanted to focus on there was when the Emergencies Act and the legislation was debated in the House in the 1980s, it was specifically noted that the, an emergency should not be invoked because of an economic crisis. That's the first part. And then the second part that we really wanted to get to at the heart of Minister uh, Freeland's testimony is that obviously we don't want to be one of those countries where we economic stability is more important than civil rights or democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to be one of those countries that says you should invest in Canada because you know, we, we, we don't allow general strikes. We don't allow protests. We don't allow sit-ins. Um, you know, your, your, your industry will never be disrupted here. So that was really the goal of Minister Freeland's cross-examination. You know, the, the way to calm the economic fears of the United States, as you just pointed out, that was, that was raised, I don't know how you rationalize that the response to that is to invoke the Emergencies Act, thereby compromising the civil rights of each Canadian in the process. I, I must be missing something, but we've had a strong relationship with the United States for over 100 years. We have telephones, we have various means of communication, and we usually, we've managed to communicate with the Americans in difficult times without compromising the civil rights of Canadians in the process. Am, am, I, uh, am I missing something? No, I, I, I don't think you are. And I think what has come out of the evidence of this commission is that essentially what we what we need what what was, what was needed was once these protests were determined to be illegal in different capacities or once they stepped over the line into being illegal, then the police needed to remove them in a peaceful and orderly fashion. And what we saw in Windsor was that the Ontario Police, Provincial Police, in conjunction with the Windsor Provincial Police, did manage to remove those demonstrators from the bridge. And the bridge was opened at midnight before the um, the Emergencies Act was invoked. And I put that to the Prime Minister, right? Like, you know, the Prime Minister stated that one of the reasons to invoke the Emergencies Act was to give the police more powers. But the police didn't actually need more powers, more legal tools or anything else to remove the protesters from the bridge 
the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. That was a police operation that was, you know, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association probably wouldn't say this very often, but it was a, 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 a police operation that was well-conducted where people did not get hurt, where, you know, a few people got arrested, but that overall, compared to what we saw at the G20 or other places, um, was, a, was a police operation that was well-conducted. So, I don't think that, I agree with you, I don't think the invocation of the Emergencies Act is necessary um, in order to, um, you know, convey that we're, we're able to deal with disruptions in an appropriate fashion. Yeah, and as you said, the disruption, the demonstration, um, blockade, call it what you will, of the Ambassador Bridge was over by midnight on the 13th and they didn't invoke the Emergencies Act until the 14th. So if your argument is we needed it for that particular situation, the argument falls apart because there was no protest any longer. Right. And so what the prime minister would say in response to that is that uh, they needed to make sure that the people who were doing that were not going to um, regroup and go off and block another bridge or another border. And, you know, to me, that sounds like a... It almost sounds like, oh, well, then you're invoking the Emergency Act as almost a precautionary and preventative measure, which... Which is not what it's intended for. That's not what it's intended for. And the second thing is, I think we saw that after what happened in Ottawa and the occupation in Ottawa that was really created because the, the, the trucks were permitted to park there originally, other cities that were faced with similar convoys were able to manage those. So Toronto and Quebec City and other cities throughout Canada, you know, the police basically managed those protests by not allowing them to park or, or stay in any designated place for too long. They kept them moving through. So I don't think, and I'm not sure that it's a reasonable to say, well, after Windsor, these people would have moved to Sarnia or Niagara or wherever, because I think by that point, the police had a much better understanding of how to manage this and, 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 were, and were managing it. Uh, it's not an issue of if, maybes, and possibles. The Emergencies Act, and we just, uh, I just played back the interview that I recorded with Perrin Beattie a few days ago, uh, very specific about what the what the language of the act is, and the act is very very direct. and And we had CSIS and police forces, um, RCMP, Ottawa Police, the OPP, Ontario Provincial Police, saying that they didn't believe that the threshold had been met to engage the Emergencies Act. What, what did you come away with? Uh, what was the what was the takeaway, Ms. Krajewska, from your uh, cross examination of Mr. Trudeau? Uh, so my takeaway for the, the prime minister's um, examination really is, um, I think if you listen to his entire examination, all of his evidence, and if you listen to all the minister's evidence, I think there's one. We, I think we cannot discount how um, how how this was affecting each of them personally. This was happening in Ottawa. It was happening to their staff. It was happening to them. And they were all frustrated. You mentioned in your introduction the text messages between 
Minister Lametti and Minister Mendocino. We saw other text messages. They, we, we know the clerk of the Privy Council was frustrated with the police in action. They were very frustrated that the police were not taking action that they thought ought to be taken. So I think there is that element. The second part for my cross-examination of the prime minister really is, you've, you may have discussed this on your show, and I think you alluded to it a little bit, is that you know, the threshold for invoking the Emergencies Act is that there has to be a threat to the security of Canada as defined in the CSIS Act. Now, the director of CSIS said that, that he did not think that threshold was met. And the way in which the government has looked at that has said, well, that's the CSIS director determining something for the purpose of the CSIS Act. But when the governor and council, meaning the prime minister on the advice of the clerk of the Privy Council and his cabinet, is looking at that same threshold, they're looking at it for a different purpose, in a different context, and they're looking at different inputs. And that was his evidence. And in cross-examination, I put to him, when CSIS is deciding to conduct surveillance, like when they're looking at whether there's a national security threat, it's when they're looking at conducting surveillance on one person. That's a high threshold. That's serious. I said to him, when you're invoking the Emergencies Act, that threshold can be no lower than when CSIS is looking at one individual. And he agreed. So he agreed that that, that threshold has to be met and it's going to be up to the commissioner to decide whether it was met in this case. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We expect all Veterans Affairs uh, Canada employees to interact with veterans with care, compassion, and respect. And the actions of this one employee is simply disgusting, and I condemn this behavior in the strongest terms. Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley. On what we've been finding out is, so, hello everybody, welcome. Um, what we've been finding out is so disturbing. I initially um, saw a Global News report about uh, Canadian Armed Forces members suffering with PTSD being offered assisted death by a Veterans Affairs Canada staffer. The people whose job it is to provide information, to provide support, their support personnel. The men and women in the military go through some very difficult realities, and post-traumatic stress disorder is a very real fact of life for many in the military. And we now know that... I guess we can't be 100% sure... But the allegation is, and it's very strong, that at least two members of the military, one past, one currently serving, were told by caseworkers at Veterans Affairs Canada to consider medical-assisted death to resolve their PTSD issues. 
Former CAF member and now host of the podcast Operation Tango Romeo, Mark Meinke, shares he's spoken on his podcast with both a CAF, CAF veteran and a serving member, both suffering with PTSD. And uh, you just, I mean, I'm going to say it again. Medical assistance and death was suggested to both of those members of the military. Mark Monkey joins us. Uh, podcast is again Operation Tango Romeo. And M- Mark has also testified before the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Veterans Affairs. Mark, uh, thank you for joining us. I, I'm not terribly encouraged by the words of Minister McCauley. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to look into it, essentially is what he said. That doesn't, doesn't, put, that doesn't cut it. Well, you're going to be um, <clears throat> even less pleased when you hear uh, what I heard last night. So there's been some news since we spoke last, Roy. Um, so let's go back to what the minister said. So the minister first said at the, at the first meeting of the Standing Committee of Veterans Affairs, when he showed up, that actually it was the deputy minister that said, absolutely 100%, we are sure that there's only one veteran that this has ever happened to. It's never happened, and our, and our investigation has absolutely concluded that. And the deputy minister, uh, Ledwell, I think, Paul Ledwell, said that, like two, three times, because he was grilled on it. He goes, no, no. Goes, well, how can you conclude that if the investigation isn't over? He's like, oh, no, but we have. The investigation says that this has only happened one time to one veteran, that's it. Well, when another veteran came forward to me, and uh, this one is actually willing to testify, and then I let the cat out of the bag the day before the second hearing, which was on the 24th, uh, they got out in front of it with the, with the spin machine, and they said, okay, okay, okay. So, yeah, uh, it's more than one. We've now counted four veterans <laughs> that, uh, that this has happened to. But, but it's only one veteran service agent. This time we're sure, we are sure. Our, our investigation has shown it's only one veteran service agent, but yes, it happened four times. Well, the four times that he cited, none of them um, included the new guy who's going by the pseudonym Bruce, who came forward to me, uh, who again was uh, written about in the National Post. So at the count is now five. But there's only been one. Yeah, but there's only been one, one time. It's never happened. So uh, the, the goalposts keep moving. Well, Mark, Mark it's, um, it's stunning that they would do that. They, they, they haven't had the investigation. They haven't conducted an investigation. So you have a deputy minister getting up, and this is damage control of the worst kind. Oh, yeah. Because once you're on the record with something, we've always said, don't say to me today what you don't want me to play back for you tomorrow. Um, but that, that's so ludicrous to say, I mean, you've talked to two of them and you have the deputy minister getting up and saying, no, it's only one. No, it's only one. It's well, uh, they didn't know about the second one until uh, the morning of the um, uh, of, of the next hearing. So I caught them off guard. If I was a bit smarter, I would have let it out of the bag after they testified the second time. Do you know but, what? This uh, is this is about this is about veterans. This is about you and every other veteran in the military. This is this is about the men and the women who struggle, who suffer. And it's, it's about doing the right thing for each and every one of them. That's the expectation. 
once their military careers are over, for whatever reason, or even if the careers are still ongoing and they're dealing with PTSD, which is uh, Bruce, the active member who spoke with you, that's his reality. The responsibility of the military is to do the right thing, and they have not done the right thing. We know there are flaws. I've done interviews for years on this. And we know that, that we know that, uh, that, that members of the military fall through the cracks. I spoke with a, a woman in Edmonton. She's a lawyer. Her husband was in the military. He had some PTSD or some, some issues that had to do with, I believe it was mental health issues that had to do with his overseas service. They were going to toss him out of the military before he became eligible for pension. I, hope, I think I've got this exactly correct. And then when she, when she started talking about it, she talked to me about it on the air, the military said, no, we won't do it now. No, we're not going to release him from, from the military. But then when, when the, the dust settled down a bit, Mark, guess what they did or attempted to do? And the, these exact same st- stories like what you're referencing, Roy, is even worse within the RCMP. So because of my show, uh, it's a trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. So uh, there's a few things that the show does. One, I'm an aggregate for resources. So I find experts from around the world, from all kinds of modalities of healing, bring them on the show, and we talk about uh, what they have to offer. Because what uh, Veterans Affairs has to offer is very little. And so to build that out, I'm finding other resources, better mousetraps. And uh, so that makes me a center point, not just veterans, but RCMP members. And I have an RCMP member that I'm working on right now that um, has stories that just make your toes curl about how this person was treated when they said, hey, you know, I, I, need, a, I need some help for uh, PTSD because of all these horrible things that I've endured. I I'm, I'm have these horrific uh not side effects but symptoms and and I need I needed some help and they said suck it up buttercup uh, you got to learn to be tough at this job yeah. you know I guess you're just weak <laughs> I thought Mark, we were past this I Mark that's that, a, that's uh, exactly what I heard from a Toronto police services sergeant a few years ago yeah. we did we did a series on PTSD and it's a Toronto police service sergeant said exactly the same thing but because he had PTSD he felt he was being ridiculed by those, by those around him, and particularly by his superiors. So we did a whole well, series on that, and, and, and there is the men and the women in, the, in, in, in frontline service who have PTSD don't get, the, don't get the, the, the respect that they receive. I have to take a break in a second, but just give us an idea, please, of what you heard from the first uh, veteran retired nor not active, but then what you also heard from Bruce, the active member of the Canadian Armed Forces, what did they tell you happened to them? Well, I can kill two birds with one stone with this one because it was almost like it was from a script. Uh, the veteran service agent, unprompted in both cases, said almost verbatim the same darn thing, which was, uh, oh, by the way, <laughs> If up the road you're feeling depressed and you start to think about suicide, it's better than blowing your brains out. Let us do it for you. It's it's not as messy. It's like the same message said twice to two different veterans. And also that um, we've done it before, and this is the key one, we've done it before and we can do it for you. That was said both times. And in both times it was also said that we've already completed so there's one dead veteran. The, the government of Canada helped to kill one veteran minimum. So this is what this is what the two 
members of the military, one one no longer in the military, the other one still active, they told you the same story. That's what they shared with you, what, what you it just shared same, with us. It was, it was the same story, and these stories are nine months apart. Okay. How many more times did this story happen over those nine months? Okay, so at this point we have to say, because the investigation is going to have to be carried out, it's an allegation at this point, so we have to say that. But I've heard far too many disturbing issues disturbing examples for me to sit here and say I'm not challenging what they said not for a second I can't because I mean that's their story well Veterans Affairs has admitted that this has happened okay all right it's just some of the finer details that uh, uh, haven't been fleshed out but they've they've admitted to this so there's you know there's no room for conspiracy theory and well, I'm not I, have a, I have a third one that I'm working on to, to have come forward right now. Yeah, Mark, I'm not suggesting any conspiracy theory here at all. My, yeah. my feelings, my support, my empathy is with the men and women in uniform always. I want to play that clip again from Lawrence McCauley. This is the Veterans Affairs Canada Minister. We expect all Veterans Affairs Canada employees to interact with veterans with care, compassion, and respect. And the actions of this one employee is simply disgusting, and I condemn this behavior in the strongest terms. Well, let's see what they do. So there's one other point I wanted to raise with you, and I know that this was brought up by, certainly by Bruce, who you talked to, and that is a person whose life is being impacted severely by PTSD and who's seeking help, Mark, may well be in a desperate condition and could be influenced by being told medically assisted death was available and they'd done it before. A person could be influenced by that, yes? Well, absolutely. What I mean, whatever training they're getting at back is not enough. Uh, the minister testified the other day that they only get an hour and a half of suicide prevention training. I took a two-day, full-day course on the same, and that was just the, the bare nuts and bolts. So an hour and a half is absolutely ludicrous for suicide intervention training, absolutely ludicrous. They don't even understand the basics, uh, like the comments that we were talking about uh, before the break from, from people saying, oh, you just got to suck it up. It's because they don't understand that PTSD is a neurological injury. You can put somebody into a brain scan, uh, MRI kind of deal, and you can see from the brain scans, like, oh, there's the injury. There it is. Like, it is a physical injury of the brain. Uh, it is not a weakness. If somebody loses their legs to a landmine, nobody goes around saying, oh, you must have had weak shins. You know, what's, what's wrong with you? How come you're not tough enough? How come you didn't see the landmine? Nobody does that. But that's still the ignorance of uh, so, so many in leadership including at Veterans Affairs, where they don't understand what that is a neurological injury. So that's, that's a starting point. So when you appeared before the Standing Committee, Parliamentary Standing Committee on Veterans Affairs, would you describe that experience, please? What did you get from that? What did you come away with? Well, I thought it was very telling that I was the only actual witness. Now, no disrespect to the other three that were there, but the other three were witnesses to nothing at all. What they were was um, very nice people that are stakeholders in the veterans community that had no evidence to provide whatsoever. So it's as if they were chosen and placed there 
to sort of um, lighten the mood. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was no function, really. Um, and it made me wonder, it's like, well, okay, are we in sweep it under the carpet mode? Like, what's going on here? Because I was the only material witness, and I, I did suggest to them a couple other material witnesses, but they did they were not invited to to be there. And um, I will say though that it did not seem to be a partisan movement. Uh, members from all sides, uh, liberal, NDP, Bloc, all of them came up to me after the testimony and thanked me for being there. And were very respectful, and I, I didn't feel like I was getting cross-examined or uh, second-guessed. So. That was a relief. Um, it really seems that on all sides, on uh, every party, really wants to get down to the bottom of this. Yeah, you know when, I mean, it was your testimony before the parliamentary committee that caused Bruce to to contact you at Operation Tango Romeo on the podcast, and he wasn't looking for maid when speaking with the VAC caseworker, but medically assisted death was raised by the caseworker. That's that's really. So disturbing. And, and Bruce, here's another one that's really disturbing, um, Mark. Bruce didn't want to be identified, doesn't want to be identified, because he worries about repercussions. And rightfully so. Uh, I forget the name offhand, but uh, I, it was given to me by, by Bruce Moncour, I think. I, I got it written down at home. But there is precedent for active, active serving members testifying at committee um, the last one that I heard about was actually subpoenaed, so didn't have a choice. It was by subpoena, and he got the bums rush out of the uh, military as a result. So there were repercussions, and anybody that served, they know that uh, when it comes to the media relations and whatnot, that it's a career suicide to open your mouth. Um, our listeners are very familiar with Bruce Moncour. He's been on this program many times. So we have a minute here. What's the takeaway at this point? There's more to come. But what's the takeaway at this point, Mark? Well, for the listeners, what I've been hearing from people is the apologist. It's like, well, it was probably isolated incident. Well, now we know that's not true. Well, maybe it's, it's only just one service agent. And what we haven't got to yet is I have proof as of last night that there is absolutely a second service agent. So this is not just one service agent. And I'm working carefully and gently with that person to find a way for them to come forward with that. Okay. Uh, hopefully they do it and I don't have to do it for them. But okay. I'm working on that now. So this, prepare yourselves. This could be a systemic thing. I don't think it's just two rogue employees that have the same right. perverted kink to offer made to people. As you know, and we said this at the beginning of the program, during 2022, we lost several NHL stars, including the incomparable Guy Lafleur, Mike Bossy, Clark Gillies, and this week, Borja Salming. The Maple Leafs all-star defenseman who perhaps more than any other North American, non-North American born, raised and trained NHL player, opened up the league to the entry of the international star players. Um, he arrived with Inga Hammerstrom, from Sweden, and uh, Inger Hammerstrom would return to Sweden fairly quickly, but Boreas Salming faced the challenges placed in his way, and he earned the respect, and certainly was a tremendously skilled hockey player who won over fans over his 16 seasons with the Maple Leafs. All-time leader in games played at 1,099 points by defenseman, 768, 
And in 1996, Borea Salming was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame and in 2017 was included in the NHL's 100 Greatest Players lineup. Earlier this month, he was present in Toronto for two nights of being honoured during the Hall of Fame weekend, and almost everyone by then knew Borea Salming's battle with the ALS was ongoing, and as we know, he died earlier this week. So joining me is one of the all-time great NHL players, former captain of the Montreal Canadiens, who played for the Habs for 12 seasons from 1982 to 1993-94, before concluding his career with the St. Louis Blues and the Dallas Stars. Guy Carboneau, who, uh, of course, faced Borea Salming on the ice. Guy, thank you very much uh, for, for joining us, coming back on the program. It has been a rough year. We've lost many great stars, including your your very personal friend, Guy Lafleur. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a tough, like you said, I think it's been a tough year. Um, you know, I'm 62 years old, so I'm getting there in age, and I guess, uh, you know, everybody's uh, aging, and we're just in that that part of the, you know, the great NHL players that are a little older, and uh, so it, it was, uh, I think it's going to keep going, but it's it was unfortunate to lose all those uh, great, great players at the in a close close period of time. Yeah. I, w- I was thinking earlier today, and you spoke with us on the air in April after the death of your friend and Canadians legend Guy Lafleur. I was thinking this is where strong team structures and players, alumni staying in touch would be really important. And you have you have that with the Habs, don't you? Yeah, we did. I, I think, it, you know, Montreal Canadian was one of the first uh, team really to get uh, the alumni involved. Uh, they spent, uh, and they still spend a lot of money uh, you know, trying to keep that together. Uh, they were helping a lot of uh, older players. Uh, you know, I, everybody knows the salaries in those days were not uh, not as high as today. So uh, a lot of people are in need. Um, there's a lot of, you know, injuries, uh, illness, uh, whatever, drugs, alcohol. Uh, Guy, you were just talking about how important the structure is within a team and the alumni. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's part of it. Like, I'm, I'm on the board here in, uh, with the Canadian alumni, and I'm on the board with uh, the NHL alumni. And uh, we, we, you know, I think what we see in the last 10, 15, 20 years is uh, a lot of, uh, you know, I guess people are getting older, and the salaries are not as high, you know, in those days than it is today. So uh, a lot of people are in need, uh, whatever medical attention, uh, money, you know, attention. Uh, uh, as we see, and as, as we say in in those association, you know, the the time that you play in the NHL is a lot shorter than the time you spend on the alumni um, sheet. So, uh, you know, it, it's 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 fun to be involved, uh, but you know, I think you see it more and more often now throughout the NHL, not just here in Montreal, but uh, I think pretty much every team now. Uh, understands the situation and, and really work hard to uh, have some some stuff uh, that we can provide to those people are are need. Yeah, when, when you think of Borja Salming, what are your memories of him? Well, I mean, it wasn't those days like there was not a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Europeans in the NHL. I, I think you know uh, we were talking about that this week because you know uh, I think everybody was trying to to remember things about Borgie, but he was one of the first uh, European, definitely one of the first like the first Swedish players to play in the NHL. 
And I remember when uh, Matt Maslin came in with the Montreal Canadiens, um, it was not easy for him. I mean, they were, I would say, abused, but uh, they were this, you know, I, I think, uh, and, and playing against Borgie, uh, he was a tough, tough player on the ice. But he got abused a little bit, you know, being a defenseman in the corners. Uh, there was a lot of people that were not happy to see those guys on the ice. So uh, you have to give credit to those guys first to leave their country, uh, leave with their family to, to, you know, to play in, in a different style of, of game. And, uh, and you know, not only they were, you know, they were great players on the ice. So and he was one of those guys, was one of the great players that, played throughout the years like you said he had a 17 year career um you know only i can only say good things about him like he was uh he was not easy to play against he could play both sides of the of the ring like offense defense and like i said he was uh he's a tough guy to play against yeah and we keep hearing that how good a teammate he was and how much his teammates really enjoyed being around him he was just a good guy and he did open the door for for international players yeah, I think we saw that, you know, last uh, couple of weeks ago uh, during the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, like you said, he was there for two days, and I think everybody that was had the chance to play with him and be around him in those days were there, and, and uh, uh, there was not a lot of people that uh, that didn't cry and, and when we had that ceremony on the ice. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, just as fans... Uh, we really, of course, uh, adopt certain players, right? We just have our favorite players. Uh, you were certainly always one of my favorite players. Uh, Guy Lafleur was always one of my favorite players. Patrick Roy, I'm, I'm good. my my you know my heart bleeds red, white, and blue, right? So so it's going to be. If I choose an all-star team, it's going to be all Montreal Canadiens. That's just the way it is. <laughs> but but it's yeah. We, we but when we lose these players. For the fans, we don't we don't know you personally, yeah. but you're a part of our lives. You're such an important. We sit down and we, we pay attention to a game because you're playing, and that's you reach into people's homes and you reach into their hearts. And when a when a player dies, it's like a personal loss to the fans. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think we saw that where more like you know, especially this year with with uh, with Guy Lafleur. I mean, uh, you can you can do or say the same thing about Jean Beliveau and Maurice oh, gosh, yeah. when he died, but like. You know, television was not as popular in those days than it is today. Uh, so, you know, I think pretty much everybody saw Guy Lafleur play at one point, uh, except the young kids. So, you know, obviously when he died, Mike Bossy was the same thing. Uh, Clark Gillies was the same. So, uh, you know, when you lose those guys, you kind of connect with more people and uh, more people have had the chance to see them. And they're, like you said, like, you know, the attachment uh, of a team uh, and every time you lose a guy like that from that team is, is, uh, is, is, is huge. Yeah. I'm just going to share one quick story with you about Jean Beliveau. So I was 16 years of age. I had my first job in radio, spinning records. And the story came out that Sam Pollock, I don't know whether Sam Pollock was general manager of the Habs, where he was just trying to get attention, but he was, there was a story that he was considering maybe trading Jean Beliveau. So at 16 years of age, I, gra <laughs> I grabbed the letter with the letterhead of the radio station, right? I've only been on the radio station for a couple of weeks, but I grabbed the letterhead and I write this indignant letter to Sam Pollock. How dare you consider trading Jean Beliveau? And I, I, 
you know, I was a 16-year-old kid. I wrote this letter that just ripped Pollock, and I sent it. And I copied, I sent a copy of it to Jean Beliveau. And I let him know where I was working and what the phone number was, right? So the next morning, the next weekend I'm working and the phone rings in the studio. And I answer. And I hear that voice, Guy. There was no mistaking who it was. Yeah. It was Jean Beliveau. And he said, so very, yeah, he said very kindly, he says, Monsieur Green, I just want to thank you for the letter you wrote. It means a lot. Thank you. That not only made my day, it's made my life. <laughs> I never forgot that. Yeah, he was a great man. Like, I had, you know, I, I keep saying this to people. Like, you know, I, I was drafted at 19 years old. You know, I'm a kid from Quebec City. Uh, I, you know, I played hockey since I was young. Uh, and every Saturday when you watch a game, that was the Montreal Canadiens. So, obviously, Maurice Richard, which I didn't see that much, Jean Beliveau, but Guy Lafleur and all those guys were part of my life. And, you know, having a chance to be drafted by the Canadians and starting my career, you know, um, I have the chance to go see the Canadian once in a while. But, you know, in my days, uh, when I, you know, when I started, like Jean Beliveau and Maurice Richard and Henri Richard and Yvan Cronoye and all those guys were always at the rink. Uh, whatever it was, the games, after games, before games, uh, they would come in the room and uh, every every dinner or event that we had, uh, those guys were always around and, and willing to talk to us. So uh, it was a really good time to, to start a, a career. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can I ask you a favor? Could you give me an idea of who might might make your might make Geek Carbonos all time all star uh, five you know five starting players lineup? Well, if, if if you talk about guys that I didn't play with, uh, I mean, it, there's always going to be debate. Uh, you know, I had the chance to play with and against not with but against um, Wayne Gretzky, and I, I you know. It, it's tough enough to put him at center. I know some people would say uh, Mario Lemieux, and it, it would be a, a good choice. But for me, I think Wayne, with all you know, breaking the records and things like that, I think I would put Wayne. Uh, I definitely put Red Hall as as, a, as right wing uh, or Guy Lafleur. You know, it, it's so hard. Yeah, it is <laughs> so many good players around. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I think I would put uh, Wayne there. I definitely, I think Gila Fleur uh, on the right right wing. Uh, defenseman is probably be Bobby Orr and and Nicholas Lidstrom was not that bad either. Uh, <laughs> he wasn't he? Uh, Seven Norris goal <laughs> in goal. Uh, that would be uh, you know I, I played with Patrick so many years and and I won two cups with him so I have to put him there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think I'm missing a left wing, which is always tough, but uh, I would probably, you know, uh, put Maurice Richard on left wing. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 